Chapter 22, an oracle concerning the arena of spectacles. That's where people used to go for a big show. Spectacles, anciently, were actually the sacrificing of children to the god Moloch. People used to go there and watch this. Of course, it could have other connotations, too. Today, it could be like a soccer game or at a stadium where you watch various sports of various kinds. And some of the sports of today are very violent, like wrestling or boxing. And even at soccer games, people are trampled underfoot, like this scenario here. In a modern or end-time context, there would be some modern equivalent of these ancient shows, things that were put on for the entertainment of people, to entertain the masses. Whatever is the matter with you, causing you all at once to climb onto the housetops, It's like people do when they see a spectacle. They want to get the highest place, and sometimes they climb up on their cars, and sometimes on the roof of a house if they're in the area. You resounded with loud cheers. The tumultuous town, a city of revelry, just like you see at a modern stadium. But your slain were not killed by the sword, nor did they die in battle. So as I said, anciently they sacrificed little children and threw them into the fiery furnace of the god Moloch. And it is an allusion to that. Your chiefs altogether in flight are captured without using the bow. All of you left behind are caught easily before you can get away. So these people are under a curse. They really murdered people. They murdered these infants. And so God's vengeance is coming upon them. And the enemy is upon them. They themselves are slain, even their leaders. Because of this, I said, turn your attention from me, though I weep bitterly. Hasten not to comfort me at the ruin of the daughter of my people. For the prophet again, even though he recognizes the wickedness that has brought this plight upon these people, he has complete empathy for them at the same time. He sees that his people generally are ruined. There is no comfort when an entire people turns away from God and is slain or destroys itself. For my Lord, the Lord of hosts, has in store a day of commotion and trampling and riot in the arena of spectacles a day of battering down walls and of crying in distress to the mountains. There is again the day in store, which is a link to, say, chapter 2. The Lord of hosts has the day in store for all the proud and arrogant, for all who are exalted that they may be brought low. Chapter 2, verse 12. We see that expression all the way through the book of Isaiah, referring to the day of judgment. In this case, a day of commotion and trampling and riot in the arena of spectacles such as there was during the time of entertainment, when you were watching this spectacle, this show, this display of whatever it was, it caused commotion and trampling and riot. Much today, you see it in some sport arenas, where people get really excited, and some people get trodden underfoot and actually get killed in the melee. A day of battering down walls and of crying distress. The enemies batter down the walls or the defenses of the people and come in and invade the land, And the people cry in distress to the mountains as a place of refuge. When Elam takes up the quiver and horses a harness to the chariots of Aram, and Kir unveils the armor, then shall your choice valleys fill with chariots, and cavalry take up positions at your gateways. Here are various allies of the Assyrians coming in, each one with its specialty, and invading the promised land or the land where God's people dwell. 
In the day Judea's defensive screen is removed, you will look to the forest home as protection. So Judea's defenses come down, as we saw in chapter 5, in the allegory of the vineyard, where the enemy breaks down the walls and comes in and tramples all over the vineyard. People will look to the forest home as protection. Maybe they'll think to go to their mountain cabins where they go in the summertime or some alternative situation. The point being that they are removed from the land where they normally live. Now also, Judea's defensive screen, like I said earlier, if Russians were to invade Europe, we would know that we would be next. If Europe fell, then there's half of our ability to defend ourselves because they're part of the Western Alliance of Nations. When you saw the city of David increasingly breached, you conserved water in the lower reservoir. You took a census of the buildings in Jerusalem, tearing down buildings to fortify your wall. You built cisterns between the walls for the water from the old reservoir, but you did not look to its maker nor have regard to the one who designed it long ago. So the people are taking all kinds of precautions. The city of David is where the descendants of David ruled. I've often thought that if Judea referred to Europe, then the city of David could refer to Britain, where the British royal family, who are descendants of David, still rule. But that's just my own little potential scenario. The conservation of water and taking precautions and following all of these contingency plans, they're doing it hoping to survive the siege or the attack, but not realizing or not wanting to recognize that protection or deliverance comes from God. He's the one who provides the water. He's the one that brought forth the spring out of the earth to begin with. The old reservoir was the Gihon Spring, anciently. The lower reservoir was the Pool of Siloam, where the water ran down into In such a day, my Lord, the Lord of hosts, calls for weeping and lamentation, for austerity and wearing sackcloth. The people are not in a repentant mode. Um, They still think they can do it themselves, that they must rely upon themselves. Instead, there is mirth and merrymaking, the killing of cattle and slaughter of sheep, eating meat and drinking wine. Let us dine and drink, for tomorrow we die. Their behavior is the very opposite of what it ought to be. If they want protection or deliverance, they should turn back to God and repent and be healed. Instead, they're just kind of blatantly pursuing their own hedonistic pursuit of pleasure. The Lord of hosts, reveal this to my ears. Such wickedness cannot be forgiven you till you die, says my Lord, the Lord of hosts. So that kind of wickedness is so bad that you have to be wiped out. It's like if a man commits murder, then his blood should be shed. That's the law. And so it is here, their wickedness is such that they deserve to die. They've brought it upon themselves. And their wickedness cannot be removed until they pay for it with their deaths. Their guilt cannot be taken away until they die. Thus said my Lord, the Lord of hosts, go and see that steward Shebna, overseer of the palace. Say to him, what are you up to? Who do you think you are? That you hewn yourself a tomb here like those who hew their sepulchres up high carving out graves for themselves in the rock. This person, Shebna, is mentioned later on in the book of Isaiah too, but he's mentioned in a more favorable tone there. And so we get the impression here that this name, Shebna, is more like a code name of somebody else. In the latter-day context, 
there will be somebody like Isaiah characterizes this Shebna here who will do this kind of thing at that time, possibly in our own day. A lot of these prophecies in these particular chapters are very difficult to pin down because they're so historical, they're so biographical. And some of them are a little bit of a mystery where they fit in. But as a type for our day, they make most sense. All of these nations were nations who hung together, who relied on the arm of flesh, and who didn't turn to God for the most part. With few exceptions they did, but for the most part not. The same here with Shebna. He thinks himself somebody, and he's very interested in himself rather than letting others determine what kind of burial he's going to have. He's making plans to give himself a glorious burial and to kind of honor himself even after he's gone. The scenario in this chapter where Eliakim replaces him, that is part of the reversal of circumstances between the righteous and the wicked. That those who are now exalted will be humiliated and those who are humiliated because of their righteousness, the Lord will exalt. That's part of what's going on here. He's part of the ones who exalt themselves. There are individuals who do that, and there are nations who do that. What does the Lord say to him? The Lord will hurl you away as an athlete hurls a missile. He will make you soar like a dart. He will bind you tightly about and send you spinning like a top into an open country. There shall you die in your inglorious conveyance. There shall be a disgrace to your master's house. I will thrust you out of office. You will be expelled from your post. In the book of Isaiah, you have a political and a religious situation. We have Ahaz being replaced by Hezekiah, an apostate descendant of King David, who will be replaced by a righteous descendant of King David. And Ahaz and Hezekiah are types for a scenario of that kind in the last days, in the end time. And so it is here. This is more a spiritual version of that replacement, where the one claimant or the one steward of the Lord's house, which has a spiritual connotation in an end-time scenario, will be replaced by another steward whom the Lord appoints, who will replace him. He will thrust the one out of office and replace him with another one. Now, as for the missile to which he is bound and hurled away, one can only speculate what that means. At any rate, the one will be humiliated and the other one will be exalted. In that day I will commission my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah. When he calls him my servant like that, that implies a covenant relationship with Eliakim. Whereas in verse 15 he says to the prophet, go and see that steward, Shebna, overseer of the palace. He doesn't even call him by his full name like he does Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, which shows respect. He just says that steward, Shebna, which implies dishonor. The man has brought dishonor upon himself. In that day I will commission my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah. And that day is, of course, the day of judgment too, or pushing the day of judgment. Rhetorically, it connects to that in the book of Isaiah. I will clothe him with your robe and bind your girdle on him. And the binding of the robe and girdle in the book of Isaiah tie rhetorically to the Lord's servants later on being clothed in the priestly robes with priestly garments, priestly girdle. I will appoint him your jurisdiction. 
it alludes to a spiritual role, even though it has political connotations. I will appoint him your jurisdiction. That's another word link, appoint, because in the book of Isaiah, the Lord appoints his servant. So it ties rhetorically to the Lord's servant, whom the Lord calls to prepare the way before his coming, whose mission is to all nations, who renews the covenant of the Lord with his people throughout the world and delivers them from exile and from captivity and brings them back in a new exodus to the promised land, to Zion, where there is protection for them. There's a clear link here between the Lord's servant and this steward who replaces the false steward, Shebna. And he will be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Father, again, is a technical term implying a proxy deliverer or savior. Just like Joseph was father to Pharaoh, Joseph in Egypt was father to Pharaoh. A father figure is one who uh, has stewardship over his sons, and his sons may be the literal sons or also adopted sons and daughters. I will invest him with the keys of the house of David. When he opens, none shall shut. When he shuts, none shall open. So he has the sealing power, as it's called, to seal on earth as is sealed in heaven, as is recorded in the New Testament. I will fasten him as a nail in a sure place, and he will be a throne of glory to the house of his father. The nail is also a metaphor. It is temple imagery alluding to this person's proxy role on behalf of others. Upon him shall be hung all the glory of his father's house, his descendants and posterity, including all the lesser vessels, from ordinary bowls to the most common containers. Those who hang upon him, who rely upon him to deliver them, or who rely upon him as their father, as a steward over them, include his descendants, or the descendants of the house of David. His posterity including all the lesser vessels. Vessels meaning people, or descendants, or offspring. So vessels are people, in that sense. Vessels is a metaphor describing the posterity of the house of David. From ordinary bowls to the most common containers. We see also the word vessels as a metaphor in chapter 66, verse 20, where it says, They shall bring back all your brethren from throughout the nations to Jerusalem, my holy mountain, as offerings to the Lord, just as the Israelites brought offerings and pure vessels to the house of the Lord. So like trees and like other metaphors, denotes people here. People who rely upon him, upon his stewardship with God. He's a nail in a sure place. He has risen in the book of Isaiah to the level of a savior figure. In that day, says the Lord of hosts, the nail that was fastened in the sure place, that's the other nail, who was supposed to be a savior figure or a savior of those over whom he had stewardship, but who was mainly interested in himself. In that day, the nail that was fastened in the sure place shall be removed. It shall be dislodged and fall, and the burden hanging on it cut off. The Lord has spoken it. So the fall is the same as the fall of Babylon and the fall of anybody else who is cut off and cut down in that day of judgment. So those who looked to the former steward, to the false steward, they will fall with him. He's there, in a sense, to lead them to destruction if they rely upon him. People should not rely upon him. 
if they were alert and wise and cognizant of what the Lord is doing, they would not be removed. They would not fall or be cut off with him. So some then attach themselves to one individual and fall with him, and others attach themselves to another individual who is the Lord's servant, who is a savior figure whom the Lord appoints, who is clothed with the robes of the priesthood, and so forth, and he becomes their savior. And that is the situation with the Lord's servant in the book of Isaiah, on the one hand, and with some kind of false steward or prophet or servant of God, on the other hand. And that's very similar to what Jesus predicts in the New Testament. He talks about the one steward who will be looking forth for the signs of his coming or for his coming. And there he talks about an unfaithful steward who uh, eats and drinks with the drunken and says that my Lord is long in coming. And he begins to smite his fellow servants. That is the one whom he cuts off. So this scenario here kind of ties in with that prophecy of Christ's. I think it's in Matthew 24 about the two different stewards. The righteous steward replaces the wicked steward.